0: to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, this is... Uh... Quite the passage and ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us and instruct us. We know we need help and we know that you are able to give that help. So we trust you to accomplish through your word what only you can accomplish. God, whatever we need, pray that your spirit would minister to us this morning and give it to us as we look into your word. May we receive from your hand that which you have for us and we ask it in Jesus' name. Okay, so let's just read this first verse again and jump in. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, if it's even possible, let's try to zoom through and remember where we've been to this point of this letter-slash- message uh, that the writer to the Hebrews has given us. Now let's remember so that we can draw a line between what has been said and this therefore, which starts our passage today. We have finished two chapters, the first two chapters of this book written by whomever it was that wrote it. And man, there's been a couple of, well, there's been a couple of doozies those two chapters so from the get-go with the first three verses we've seen jesus in all of his glory or at least as much of his glory as we can possibly see through the revealed word of god he was said to be how god has spoken in these last days and was shown to be the exact representation of the radiance of the glory of god Jesus made purification for sins, then sat down in the place of highest honor at the right hand of the majesty on high, having inherited a name and a status far superior to angels. And then after some specific proofs of Jesus being not an angel, but rather far greater than any angel, the writer called us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard about Jesus. Why? Lest we drift away from it. If the message brought by angels proved to be reliable, and people didn't uh, get away without consequences if they neglected that message. So then how are we, who have received a much greater message than the law, how are we to escape greater consequences if we neglect so great a salvation that we have heard about through the life and ministry and words of Jesus? We then saw that man, human beings, play a very specific role an exalted place in the plan of God with all things being placed in subjection under our feet, though we don't see that currently. And to show how special man is in God's plan, Jesus was shown to take on flesh and suffer and learn obedience through that suffering just like a human being has to. For it was fitting, the writer says, that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And Jesus, being made like us, is not ashamed to call us brothers, having made propitiation for the sins of his people. And then we finished last week's passage with verse 18, which said, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And we could close the book there and go on, home. that's pretty good, right? Yeah. Therefore, then, what are we to do? Well, first, we need to know who we are. And that's exactly what the writer goes into. The writer says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Well, that's a lot to consider, isn't it? In addressing his recipients, the writer of Hebrews calls them holy brothers and you, plural, who share in a heavenly calling. Now that's that's shouting ground. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers, and neither is the writer of this wonderful letter. And not just brothers, but holy brothers. The writer acknowledges that the believers he is writing to are his brothers. And again, that's a generic word that refers to all believers, male and female. God created man in his image Male and female, he created him, them. Uh, Watchman Nee tells a story of a man who was told to go call the brothers in for the meeting and the brother asked, are you talking about the male brothers or the female brothers or both? (laughs) Again, this is not a gender specific nor exclusionary word when it says brothers. We are, all of us, who are in Christ, the brethren. And thank goodness we're not the sister, right? And we can rightfully say brothers or brothers and sisters, either way. And we are, all of us who are in Christ, holy. Which means we're set apart for God. We're set apart for His purposes. We're set apart for His glory. And that makes us holy. What does? His calling. Him setting us apart. He has made us holy and called us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that He has on our lives. We are, all of us believers, the holy brothers. And you may say, Well, I don't feel very holy. I don't care. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Because God sees me as holy and has declared me as holy, and that's what matters. Bring your feelings in subjection to the truth. That's what's important. So we are, all of us believers, the holy brothers, and as such, the writer says, We are those who share. In a heavenly calling. Now what's that mean? It means exactly what it says. We have been called by God. To conduct ourselves. As those who are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And who have their minds set on things above where Christ is. We are to live in the here and now. In light of our final destination. Live like we are there already. And expect to get there too. Our calling is to be with God forever in heaven, and that heaven will be on earth, God with man for all eternity. So that's who we are, according to 3.1. Now, back to the therefore. So that being who we are, and Jesus having done what he has done to become like us and bear our sins and to learn obedience through suffering, therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, what are we supposed to do? Therefore, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. That is a very simple call, but it is incredibly profound. What does it mean to consider Jesus? And what you're going to see all through the book of Hebrews is this writer coming back and saying, Look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Ponder Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Look at Jesus. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, Consider Jesus. The Greek word for consider is kat and an and it means to consider attentively, to fix one's eyes or mind upon, to give careful thought or consideration to something, or in this case, to capital S someone. Alistair Begg says it means to take dead aim at. This is like a reiteration of the call to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And we are to focus on, fix our eyes, fix our minds, fix our hearts on what or who? We're to fix our eyes, hearts and minds and lives upon the person of Jesus The writer will say later in Hebrews 12 that we are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The whole book is a call to look at, to see, to consider, to meditate on Jesus. That's what our life is supposed to be all about. And here, Jesus is called the apostle and high priest of our confession. Two things there. Apostle means a sent one, one sent. It can, not like a penny... S-E-N-T, not C-E-N-T, okay? Uh, It can mean a gift, a gift that was sent from someone to someone else, but it usually means a person sent by a greater person, a person of authority, to carry the message and to proclaim the decrees of the one in authority. And that fits with Jesus here, right? He is our apostle, sent by God as a gift to us to bring us the full picture and message of God himself. He's also the high priest of our confession. We mentioned last week a little bit and said that we'd see it again this week about this high priest thing and here we are. Jesus is the high priest of our confession. And we said in that message last week that the high priest is the one who was responsible in the sacrificial system for going into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle or the temple and making atonement for the sins of the people by presenting the blood of the sacrifice there. Well, Jesus did exactly that, right? But he did it in heaven, in the very presence of God in heaven, which the tabernacle and the temple were copies of, which a lot more on that later in Hebrews as well. So Jesus was actually... The sacrifice himself, he sacrificed himself. He accomplished our atonement by shedding his blood, which we celebrate every week rightfully. And therefore he did his high priestly work and so fulfilled that role once and for all, which is also a repeated Hebrews theme. Once and for all. And I love that he's called the high priest of our confession. Not just a heartfelt faith, even though that's a good thing. Not just a mind-convinced belief, again, a good thing, but The high priest of our confession, what we profess, what we openly avow. Jesus is the high priest of our confession, what we openly avow. Jesus, in what we think, feel, believe, and profess, is our apostle and high priest. Consider him. Take dead aim at him. So now we move from angels in what we've heard up to this point to a comparison slash contrast to another major Old Testament figure, a fellow by the name of Moses, who was faithful, speaking of Jesus, to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Okay. So we are called to consider Jesus, and Jesus is here described as one who was faithful to him who appointed him. So that's pretty straightforward, right? Jesus was faithful to his father, his father who had appointed Jesus as our apostle and high priest. Jesus was faithful to him. Okay, that's simple. He accomplished what he was sent to do by the father. But then the writer compares Jesus' faithfulness to God to that of the faithfulness of Moses. Now you want to talk about a person of interest who looms large in the life of the Jewish people. Moses is probably the man. He's probably the most exalted person to those people who were adherents to the law of God. Yeah, they're children of Abraham and David was their great king, but Moses is the one who did and said and wrote what guided every single movement of their lives, literally. The law, which we saw back earlier in Hebrews, was mediated by angels, was given through Moses. Moses is the author of the first five books of our Old Testament, those five books being referred to as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Moses wrote those. Moses was given those directly by God. And that law that he received has governed the public and private lives of faithful Jews for thousands of years now. When you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is there with His three disciples. Who shows up to converse with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, who represent the law and the prophets. Right? So, as the writer of Hebrews writes to these Jewish followers of Jesus, and he's trying to make it clear that Jesus is better, Jesus is greater, he turns his gaze, he turns his attention to the one who they would consider to be the greatest Of their ancestors, the greatest in faithfulness to God. Nobody was as faithful as Moses. And he starts by by comparison saying that Jesus was faithful to God just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Okay, so that means that Jesus and Moses were both faithful, and they were faithful in all God's house. Now note that reference to house because it's going to get expanded upon through the rest of the passage. But for now, let's just look at what it meant that Moses was faithful in all God's house. That's a reference to probably a quote from Numbers 12, 7. And I've slacked a little bit, haven't given you all any homework over the last few messages. Here's some homework for you. Numbers chapter 12. Read it, talk about it, think about it. What's going on in Numbers chapter 12 is God speaking to Aaron and Miriam. Moses' brother and sister because they got in a little bit of a hissy fit mindset and they fussed about Moses saying, well, you ain't no better than us. You think you're special? You think you're the special? (laughs) And if you look at the context in Numbers 12, 5 to 8, which we'll look at here, watch this. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. Uh Uh-oh. And they both came forward. And he said, God said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with them in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. Here's our quote. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly and not in riddles and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Whoa. Moses, I mean Aaron and Miriam got called on the carpet. And they got called on the carpet by God Himself. And God Himself says this about Moses. God Himself was admonishing Moses' brother and sister by pointing out, listen, the specialness of Moses to God. The specialness of Moses in the plan of God, in the household of God. Basically, God says, there's nobody in my household who does what Moses does, who has been as faithful as Moses has been, and who receives from me what Moses receives from me. That's a big deal. And in this exchange, God says that Moses was faithful in all my house. I love this. Commentator Gordon Winham says of this statement in Numbers, he, Moses, is God's servant entrusted, listen, with looking after all his estate, when we're talking about his house. In other words, Israel, and like other men in his position, he has immediate access to the owner of the estate, end of quote. That's a big deal. So both God and the writer of Hebrews heaps high praise on Moses as being faithful to shepherd God's house, to shepherd God's people. So Moses is a big deal. God has said, Moses is a big deal. And the writer of Hebrews says Jesus was faithful like that too. But he doesn't stop there. Verse three for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. (laughs) Now imagine being Jewish and reading that. So we saw clearly that God, the Jews, and the writer of Hebrews held Moses in very high regard. But the writer of Hebrews says, As great as Moses was, and he was great, God said, Jesus should be seen as worthy of more glory than Moses. You guys think Moses was great? Well, he was. But if you can see that, don't miss that Jesus is far beyond anything Moses ever was in God's plan and in God's agenda. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By whom? By God, the master of the house. And so too then by all who really know who Jesus is. So go back to verse 1, where we were called to consider Jesus, and then verse 2, where Jesus is said to be faithful like Moses, and now 4. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful like Moses, for this Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Consider Jesus, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, for anyone who had grown up hearing Moses quoted, had had the account of the Passover retold year after year after year, who venerated this great man of God so much, this statement has to be a shocker. We don't really get it. I mean, we liked Moses and Prince of Egypt, but he wasn't all that, right? We know his warts. We know his shortcomings. We know that that he got angry and he struck the rock twice. Shame on you, Moses, right? We know that he was just a man. And so did the Jews, but they venerated, venerated him. We're just not as impressed with Moses. As they were, if we're honest. But the Jews, to the Jews, Moses was as great or greater than anybody. But Jesus, the writer says to his Jewish audience, "has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses." And again, glory is a right apprehension of something or someone and giving praise and honor to them for that right apprehension. Jesus has been counted in the accounting books of glory and renown. Jesus' account is packed with fat (laughs) stacks. Write that down. (laughs) While Moses is like middle class at best. God has placed Jesus in a much more highly exalted place than Moses in God's Hall of Fame. And much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So, yeah, it's not just a little bit. So, here's our house analogy again, right? And the writer says that Moses is cool, yeah. But Jesus is worthy of as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now that's pretty clear language, right? That puts things in clear perspective with what we're dealing with here. Jesus is as far superior to Moses as a builder is to the house he builds. So that puts Jesus as the builder and Moses a work of Jesus. Moses did great. But he did great because Jesus' plan and power worked through him. Jesus is the builder. Moses is a work that Jesus did. So who should get the glory for what happened through Moses? God who was seen visibly through the person of Jesus who was God in the flesh. So all you find Jewish folk reverencing Moses and the life and work he did, you're not wrong. But don't fail to see past Moses and his work in relation to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And again, Jesus is the exact representation of the glory of God. Jesus is God. He's greater than angels and He's greater than Moses or anything that Moses said or did. The builder does the work. The house shows what the builder has done. And I really have a problem grasping this truth and the full extent of it. I get it, but I I have a hard time explaining it and I think it's a cultural thing. Right, because we don't live in that honor shame culture that we talked about we love this building who built it I don't know do I honor that person or those people no I don't I don't, I don't know who they are my house like my house I'm very fond of my house who built it I don't know so how much honor do I show them zero We're, we've got kind of a consumer mindset like, we're, we, we like the thing. And we, I don't even know that we honor the thing, we just enjoy it. We're kind of utilitarian in our mindset. Give me the thing so I can do the thing that the thing's supposed to do and enjoy the outcome of that for myself. Different mindset here, completely. And they knew that if you see a house, the guy that built that house, whoa, that guy is awesome. And we don't think that way, I don't think. Again, I think we can go to the Louvre and look at the Mona Lisa and say, man, that's an awesome painting. And so I say, yeah, Da Vinci. And we're like, yeah, he's cool. But look at that painting. It's a different mindset. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. I think our culture, where we value stuff more than we do people, we don't really grasp what's going on here. And I'm not saying we're bad or wrong, it's just where we're at. We're not built to show honor to people, unfortunately, in our day and time in our culture. We're products of our culture. We value things and stuff more than we do the people who design and build them. But the issue here, to the writer of Hebrews, is honor. The builder of a house is worthy of more glory than the house itself. We've moved toward utilitarianism in our... In our day and time, and we've moved away from glory and honor, and that's happened over a long period of time. But in the first century, a proper appropriation of honor to whom and where it belongs was very important. And again, I'm not beating this up. Don't feel bad. I mean, just it's where we're at. And so the writer says, and for us to understand what's going on here, we've got to understand, the writer is saying, Jesus is worthy of so much more honor than Moses. You're not wrong to honor Moses. He was in the house, and he has worth and value, and he did what he was supposed to, but Jesus is just in an altogether different realm as far as honor goes in the administration of God, in the household of God. And it's imperative that the readers and we understand that. So verse 4 expands on this. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. What a statement. In keeping with this house analogy, the writer keeps pounding on the greaterness of the builder than the house built and says that every house is built by someone. But everything, all things... Every house, every builder finds its source in God. The builder of all things is God. So, who should get the glory? Who should get the honor? God should. We've mentioned this in many different passages, including last week. God is the source of all that has been created. It is right to say, when we are thankful to something, thankful for something, God, I thank you for this food. God, I praise You for this new baby. Now, we can enjoy the baby. We can enjoy the food. But our praise and the honor for it all should be directed to God because He is the builder, the source of all things. He spoke. And the heavens and the earth and all that is in them came to be. And so where does this place God in the deservingness of honor? He should be honored above all things and all people, including Moses, including the law, including everything that issued forth from Moses and that time in God's plan. And following the logic of the passage, the builder of all things should get more glory than anything that was created by Him. Boy, we fall we fall woefully short in this category. And God is the builder of all things. And also, oh yeah, little side note, Jesus is God. Amen. So Jesus is worthy of much more honor than angels and much more honor than Moses. And newsflash, much more honor than you and me. So again, consider Him. In your struggles, consider Him and honor Him. In your seeking to be obedient, consider Him. Take dead aim, to use Beck's phrase, at Jesus. Don't look at the building. Look past the building to the builder. See the building through the builder. You can do the other way around too. You can see the builder through the building. You can see the building through the builder. But the main goal, the main aim to consider is look at God. Consider Jesus in light of what I see with my eyes, what I feel with my heart, what I think in my head, what I do with my life, all the honor is supposed to go to Jesus to be obedient to Him. And the only way that I can do that is to zero in on Him in and through all things. Focus on Him. And we could go on, but we got one more contrast to Moses. And I misspelled Moses here, and I said Mose, which makes me think of Dwight Schrute. Um, One more contrast to Mose and Jesus. Moses and Jesus to cover. We've got one more contrast to cover before we're done today. Verses 5 and 6. God bless Moses. Um, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. 6. I inserted something too soon here. I don't have 6 up there. Let me read it for you. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. Oh, If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now this, these two verses are loaded and really could have been a message in and of themselves and maybe should be. But we're going to try to get through it at the end of this message here, okay? Tons of implications for what we're talking about today and for what we're called to do and be in our Christian walk. We have further development of the Moses and Jesus comparison contrast and further talks of houses and such. And we have one more big point about holding fast. But first, let's look at the Moses-Jesus connection here again. Again, Moses is rightfully lauded as Faithful. He was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And that's a lot to process. So we already had seen that Moses was faithful, but here the writer says that that faithfulness was in all God's house as a servant. That's a really good commendation because in the kingdom of God, the way up is down and the greatest to be the servant of all. So to be called a servant is the highest compliment that God could possibly give us. Okay? Okay. But look at what Moses was to do in that servant's role. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now let's see if we can untangle that just a little bit. What was Moses' role in God's plan? He had a lot of roles actually. He was to lead God's people out of Egyptian bondage. He was to deliver the law of God to them. He was to set up the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. And he was to lead them to the promised land among other things. (laughs) One of those would be an incredible accomplishment. So that's a lot. So then how is all of that testifying to the things that were to be spoken later? Well, we've referenced this a lot in previous messages over the years. But listen again to the words of Jesus. In John 5, 39-47. Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you've had eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that I may that you may have life. He's speaking to the, the Jews of his time, the leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And that sounds so much like what's going on in Hebrews. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now you want to talk about a slap in the face to these Pharisees and scribes who had literally devoted their whole lives to the Torah more than likely had the first five books of our Bible committed to memory and spoke of Moses, 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 Moses. And Jesus says, you appeal to Moses, but you're missing it because Moses is pointing to me. And if you had understood what Moses was really saying, you would see me and go, oh, that's the one Moses was talking about. But instead, you've put all your hope on your apprehension of who Moses was and what Moses said. The passage starts with Jesus pointing out that the Old Testament scripture served one purpose: to speak of him. <laughs> so all that we see in the law, the prophets, and the writings, points directly to Jesus, right? Well, then all that Moses did and wrote points to whom then? To Jesus. So, Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house because all that he did and wrote testified to the things that were to be spoken later. The law, that points to Jesus. The tabernacle, Jesus. The sacrificial system, yep, Jesus. The promised land, a picture of our rest in Jesus. And Moses was faithful as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later in the perfect word who was in the beginning with God and who was and is God, Jesus Christ the righteous. So again, Moses, good job. You did what you're supposed to. None of this puts what Moses did in any less favorable of a light. It's all saying that he did exactly what he was supposed to do. But even all of that pales in comparison to Jesus and his place in God's plan. For while Moses was faithful as a servant to testify about what would follow his faithfulness, Jesus is a whole other story. But Christ, the writer says, is faithful over God's house as a son. And again, this is a vast difference from a servant. Moses was faithful as a servant. Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, is faithful as a son in the household of God. So we've got two major differences, two major contrasts here between Moses and Jesus and their places in God's plan. First, Moses was faithful. Jesus is faithful. Moses did what he did in time and space and then he departed and went into God's presence into eternal rest. Jesus, however, is eternal. Jesus stepped into time and space in human form, very God and very man, finished his earthly work and then just evaporated into the universe. No says that he sat down at God's right hand and later the writer of Hebrews will tell us that even now he ever lives to make intercession for us. Yes, he was faithful. Jesus was faithful. But he also is faithful. Even now. You could also say that Jesus' very character, his being faithful is simply a fact. He is faithful. Jesus can't not be faithful. So was and is. That's the first contrast. Then the writer also says Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses served in God's house as a servant. He did the work given to him in God's house and fulfilled his role as a servant. However, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The son is the heir. The son is the owner of all. The son is over all that are in the house and all that happens in the house. Moses, as a servant, was serving God and thus serving Jesus. The servant is not greater than the master. So the writer of Hebrews says, "The servant is not to receive the honor and/or the glory that the master is to receive. It's just not done." Imagine walking into a house where there are servants and saying, "Dude, you are the best. I love everything here, and I thank you for it." The servant's like, uh, "Just work here, bro." <laughs> Going to a movie theater and the usher's taking your ticket, you're like, dude, this is awesome! Thank you so much. He's like, down the hall to the left, this <laughs> theater. I've torn many a ticket in my life. Nobody ever gave me any honor for it Fifteen years of tearing tickets. That's not funny. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We don't praise the servants. We praise the master, the builder, the owner, the operator of the house. And Jesus is that owner, operator, builder. We don't give glory to servants, we give glory to the master. In order to fully realize Moses' place in the economy of God, he has to be seen as serving in the plan, in the house, that Jesus, the Christ, is over. As the son of God who owns and runs the house. That's pretty clear and pretty compelling stuff there but we're not quite done. And again, I don't have verse 6 up here, and I hate that. There's one more sentence that ends verse 6 for us. Thank you very much. And it's a lot to consider. And we are His house. That would be enough to consider. That's all we had. If, if indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. All right. Y'all ready for this? like, I don't know. All this house talk gets put in proper perspective here. And then we get set up for next week on a T with this sentence. That's a golfing term. I've never golfed. Well, I have golfed. I'm not any good. I've gone like twice in my life. But this this last sentence really sets up next week's passage and message, I mean, just perfectly. It's almost like the guy wrote it in order like he was supposed to uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, First, the writer brings this house analogy into proper focus when he says, and we are. His house. There for a bit it seemed like this house stuff was all just a word picture to help us place Moses and Jesus in God's plan. And it was that for sure, but the picture was only partially developed that way. Turns out that God's house is made up of His people. It's His household. We are the house He's building. We are the living stones that Peter spoke of that God is using to build His house, which is a house for us and for him and we are the house that he is the master of he is overseeing all that goes on with in and through and for us Moses was serving the master in the master's house and was himself a part of that household as well the house is made up of all those who have placed their faith in the working of God to do what pleases and glorifies God and we are his house that's shouting (laughs) but look at that next word One of the biggest two letter words in the Bible. If. Huh. When you hear if, what do you think? That's a condition, right? You get dessert if you eat all your peas. Well, guess there's no dessert for me then, because I ain't eating them peas. Amen. Amen. <laughs> this happens if that happens. Well, we are his house. Yay! If. Uh oh. If what? if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So if we don't do that, are we not His house anymore? That's correct. So salvation is conditional? Yes. Some of you are like, what? So we can lose our salvation if we don't hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope? No. But you just said salvation is conditional. Well, sure it is. There are conditions that have to be met in order to be saved. You must be born again. Amen. You must repent. You must believe and trust in Jesus. Those are conditions. And when those conditions are met, guess what? Ain't a chance in Helen that you can lose that. Or in heaven. Amen. Oh my, y'all. When those conditions are met, when you're born again by the working of the Holy Spirit of God who is the only being in the universe that can give life and you come to Christ by grace in in and through faith, in repentance, the Bible says what happens next is you are sealed. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him... We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. Oh my. Amen indeed. Listen to me, church. God saves and God keeps those whom He saves. If someone falls away, what's that mean? It means they weren't saved. Oh man, you talk about getting some people riled up. People that reference us as the once saved, always saved people. Her says, if your salvation's not secure, keep it. I don't want it. <laughs> and I promise you, if you could lose your salvation, you would. True. And if you could save yourself, you could lose your salvation. But you can't. So you can't. So don't read this and go, oh, this is a condition statement. Well, sure it is. Absolutely it is. But it's not saying, you better straighten up and fly around. Remember those warning passage things we talked about? They're not meant to make us afraid. They're meant to point us to Jesus. These people that don't hold fast, who do fall away, they may have expressed faith, Or they may have had a religious experience, but they weren't born again. Alistair Beck says it well when he says, quote, It's not retention of salvation based on a persistence of faith, but of possession evidenced by continuance of faith. Now I'm going to read that again. That's a lot to process. It's not retention of salvation based on a persistence of faith. You don't keep your salvation by making sure you stay persistent in your faith. But of possession evidenced by continuance of faith. As your faith continues it shows that you have been saved. And that goes on to say that our salvation is quote proved genuine by patient perseverance. Who are the ones who are saved? The ones who endure to the end. And if someone doesn't endure to the end, what does that mean? It means they weren't saved. God takes no half measures, especially including the salvation of his people. He has left nothing to chance. And so if you read that statement and go, oh, this, I'm afraid I could lose my, my perseverance and my hope. And my, no, don't do it that way. That's not what the writer's trying to communicate. It's not straighten up and fly right. God's going to get you. It's like him saying, and you'll know it as you do hold fast, you will prove to be of his household as you persevere in your faith. For, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So the call is to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so we should pray, God help me to hold fast in my confidence and my boasting and our hope. And what is that? What is our confidence? What is our boasting and hope based on? Our performance? Heavens no. This is not a merit-based salvation. Our confidence and our boasting and our hope is in the person of Jesus. Amen. So hold fast to that. Hold fast to Him. Consider Him. Take dead aim at Him. Get rid of all the noise, all the things that would divert our attention away from Him and hold fast in your confidence in Him and your boasting and your hope in who He is and what He's done. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And what we're going to see next week is are examples of those who didn't persevere, which is the rest of the chapter. But for now, we're left to turn our attention to application through three C's. Continue, crib, which is my favorite one. And what would the third one be from our passage? Uh, it's not Christ, but that's a good yeah. guess. That's the that's vacation Bible school answer. <laughs> consider. I said chapter, didn't I? Continue, crib, and Consider. That's our application point. This is what we're going to do in light of what we've seen and heard and read today. Continue. And so this this is about perseverance. Does our if today mean that we can lose our salvation? Absolutely not. There's nothing in the scripture that implies that you can lose your salvation. And if you take any singular passage and say, well, this says this, you're not taking it in the context of the whole. Okay? Again, let me let me read that that beg said again, not the retention of your salvation based on a persistence of your faith, but instead it's a possession evidenced by continuance of faith, proved genuine by patient perseverance. Remember how we were addressed at the beginning of this passage today, we are holy brothers with a heavenly calling. That's who we are. And again, I laughed. I said, I don't care if you feel that or not. I I don't. I hope you do. But if you are in Christ, you are a holy brother. You have a heavenly calling. And in the uh, benediction that we use so often that, yes, we're going to use today, he who called you is faithful and he will surely do it. The P in the tulip of the five points of Calvinism, which again, take that for what it's worth. Um, Calvin didn't adhere to them. They were developed later by somebody else. But the P is perseverance of the saints. That is a foundational tenet of our faith. We do believe that those whom God saves will persevere to the end. And the Bible teaches that consistently and speaks to the opposite of that as well. Now I've got to find my place because we went back. We went back. I went too far. First John, where are you? I'll just read. 1 John 2.19, if you can find it back there. God bless you. There it is. They went out from... God bless you. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now... Of course people hate this passage. And they're like, don't throw that at me. But John did. So these people that you're so discouraged by because they're leaving, John says it stinks, but it just goes to show that they really weren't of us. And people fall away. They have since before the first century. And the fact that they went out from us does not mean that God couldn't save them. It shows that God hadn't saved them. John 6, 37-40 All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. There's not a more Calvinistic book in the world than the book of John. This is true. Jesus says a lot of Calvinistic things. Because they're Jesus things, by the way. They're not Calvinistic. And people hate Calvinism. So be it. Whatever. Please don't hate the words of Jesus because that, that's really good news right there. Amen. How many of those who have come to Jesus are going to go away from Jesus? Zero. Again, it's not the dove 99.99% pure thing. It's 100% are going to come. And how many of those is He going to keep? 100% of them. He will leave the 99 to go find the one. Try to run away from him. He's going to come get you. Go off to the far country. He's going to run up the road to meet you when you come back, not if you come back. Mm -hmm. Praise God. We are going to continue. We are going to persevere. So that's continue. Take heart and courage and praise and give honor and glory to Jesus for that. Mm -hmm. Now, crib. Trying to find a C word for house. That's the only one I could come up with. (laughs) We are God's house. I, I was going to say something that might seem irreverent. If God wants to kick it at His crib, He kicks it with us. All right, there you go. We are His house. You people, who, people talking without speaking. <laughs> crib we are god's house now what's that mean it does mean that we are members of his household yes it does mean that but what did we see and what did we talk about in first peter as you come to him he who was a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of god chosen and precious for you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is picking out the stones that he's using to build his house. And that's us. By his grace. We didn't petition in politics. Hey look at me. I'm an awful good rock. I'm done as a rock. No I mean I'm a good rock. And God said you know what that is a good rock. He's got a good point. That's not what happened. I choose that one. And I'm going to fit it perfectly into this house that I'm building for myself. Oh, church, do you know what God is doing in building His church? And He chose you to be a part of it. Ephesians two nineteen to 22 So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that's us, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Oh, do you see your treasured, valued, special place in the plan of God because of what he's done? And he's building you into a temple that he's going to inhabit for all eternity. The dwelling place of God is with man. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every house must have its builder. And Rich Mullins says, and I awoke in the house of God. You are his house. Church. Now act like it! I'm just kidding, that's not the application (laughs) for (laughs) continue crib and finally consider this is the point of the passage this is the main thesis this is the main thing take dead aim at Jesus read these accounts of snipers right some of them like a mile away and what have they got to do? They got to look in that scope thing. I don't know which eye would look through. I guess dominant eye. I don't know. And they got to get rid of everything else. Everything else is still there. There's a battle raging around them. There's a war going on. And they've got one role. Find that one person. Zero your sights in on that one person. Get them in the crosshairs. And if anything obstructs or gets in the way, you wait until you have a clear view of the one that you're called to focus on. Take dead aim at. And that's exactly what this passage is calling us to do. We are to honor Jesus because the builder is greater than the house. The son is greater than a servant. And we are to zero in and take dead aim for the rest of our lives in the present and into eternity. Zero in on Jesus. Know Him as the Apostle and the High Priest of our confession. And focus all your attention, all your affection, everything you have on the person of Jesus. He is worthy of all honor and praise. He is worthy of all your devotion, all your attention. And listen, here's the... I don't even want to say this. Here's here's what wraps it all up. The Kemper. Here's the Kemper. There's the Kempers. Here's the Kemper. We get great reward from this. It's not just Jesus gets all the honor and praise and glory. That's great. That's wonderful. We get all the good. He's causing everything to work together for the good of those who love Him, who are the called according to His purposes. So as I zero in on Jesus and I see everything through Him... As I focus my attention and affection upon Him and I'm seeking to please Him in the power of the Spirit to the praise of His glory, man, I get a lot of good from that. Yeah, I struggle. Yeah, I suffer. Yes, I fall. Yes, I do have to go through tough times. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For He's with me. His rod and His staff, he, they comfort me. Because all I can think about, all I can focus on, Is just Jesus. And Jesus is better. In all my sorrow, Jesus is better. In all my victories, Jesus is better. In all my comfort, Jesus is better. So zero in on Him. Paul says this in Colossians 3, 1-4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. He's your life. And finally, Hebrews 12, use an application point from later Hebrews for this passage in Hebrews. Therefore, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus. Taking dead aim at Jesus. Zeroing in on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, he says in Hebrews 12, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Jesus is our confidence. Jesus is the hope that we boast Him. Yes, consider Him. In all you do, home, work, play, whatever, suffering, victory, consider Him. Take dead aim at Him. Focus on Him. See And love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And He gets the glory, and we get the good from it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we are the stones You have chosen. And you are using us to build a house, a dwelling place for yourself. It has pleased you, God, to dwell with us, to dwell in us, and to glorify yourself through us. Look what you have done. Father, help us to know that we will continue in the faith because it's of your doing. Help us to know that we are indeed the the house, the home that you are building. And help us, God, in everything we do to consider Jesus. To zero in on him. To take dead aim at him. So that we might know what our full potential is. So that we might know the glory that belongs to him only. In all my sorrows, in every victory more than any comfort, more than all riches. Jesus is better. Make our hearts believe. We ask it in His name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? You already know what it's going to be. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, He who calls you is faithful. He... Will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us.